You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. My name is Jordan Haley. I'll be filling in for Dr. Joe Kirkendall today. He actually will be back next week. And so I am really excited to be here with you guys. Uh, I really enjoyed teaching. I actually did my seminary at Oral Roberts University. And I graduated a little over a year ago. And while I was there, I met my beautiful wife who is here. And I said I was going to point her out and embarrass her. So she's the one with her uh, hand covering her face. So, yeah, we've been married for just over 10 months now. So September 19th will be a year for us. So that's exciting. And so we've been in the springs for around a year now. So, but today we are starting a new topic. Um, the topic of the church, the study of ecclesia. Um, and uh, this fancy word behind me is the Greek word used in the New Testament for church, uh, ecclesia. And so it's, today is the study of ecclesiology. Sorry, I didn't say it correctly before, but it's the study of the church. And so we're going to dive right into this. Um, the word ecclesia has a few different meanings. Um, they're all generally the same, but they are slightly different. And the most basic definition in its most basic form it means a gathering. So you could say, okay, we're gathering right now, okay? And that's the most basic. I would kind of refer that to maybe like a, a secular uh, definition for ecclesia. Um, another definition used in the New Testament where the New Testament writers will use the word ecclesia to refer to a local congregation, to refer to one church body. In addition to that, they'll use the word to refer to multiple churches in a given area, and last, it's also used in reference to the church body as a whole. All, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, who is part of the church, um, they would describe that as the ecclesia also. So you can see there's a, a couple different usages in the New Testament, but they're all basically the same. So we're going to dive into some of these different usages and see uh, some deeper meaning behind it. Okay, when did the church begin? Does anyone know? Scream it out if you know. When did the church begin? Or believed to begin? What was that? In Acts? It was at, well, it's recorded in Acts, and it was actually at Pentecost. See, I thought you guys were awake. I asked you guys a question, you guys were dead on me again. I mean, I was, I was ready to, like, challenge you guys right off the bat when you guys got all excited when I started, so we'll see if you guys respond later. Okay, it started at Pentecost. What's Pentecost? Um, well, I'm glad you guys asked, so I will give you a quick rundown what Pentecost is. Pentecost actually is a Jewish holiday. Um, it is a Jewish holiday that sub- celebrates the first of the harvest, and so it was already an established Jewish holiday where people from, excuse me, people from all over would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. So you have people traveling miles upon miles. It happened once a year. So within Judaism, Pentecost was a big deal. You're like, wait a minute. I've heard of Pentecost. That's not quite the Pentecost I understand. Well, before Jesus ascended into heaven, after he was resurrected, he was meeting with his disciples, and he's like, hey guys, I'm about to leave, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to empower you guys. I don't want you leaving Jerusalem. Don't be peacing out on me again. You know, 
when I died and I was buried for a while, you guys spread out, scattered, feared, went back to fishing. He's like, hey, don't do that on me again. Stay in Jerusalem, and then while you're in Jerusalem, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. So the disciples are remaining in Jerusalem, and the Jewish holiday, Pentecost, is going on. On Pentecost, during the Jewish holiday, is when the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is poured out. And so that is the birth of the church, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on all flesh. Why is that the beginning of the church? Another great question. The reason why Pentecost is the beginning of the church is because it's the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy in chapter 31 and the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy in chapter 2. And Jeremiah 31 talks about the new covenant. He talks about how he's going to establish the law in people's hearts. And that is being fulfilled at Pentecost because he is establishing his Holy Spirit in the hearts of people on all mankind. So right then and there, the law, God himself is, it is intervening and establishing that within us. Also, in Joel chapter 2 is the passage where it talks about God, going to, he's going to pour out the Holy Spirit on all flesh. So right there at Pentecost, Pentecost is a Jewish holiday. The disciples were gathered together on Pentecost. It is the beginning of the church because it's a fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy and Joel's prophecy where the Holy Spirit is poured out on all flesh. Does that make sense? Pentecost, Holy Spirit, beginning of the church. Big deal. Okay. The reason this is a big deal also is because in Judaism, the temple was the center of the religion. Center theologically and geographically. Everything took place in the temple and it's also considered the dwelling house of the Lord, where, where God dwelled, where his presence was. Okay, after Pentecost now, you have the Holy Spirit that is poured out on all flesh. So now, the temple before is where it is viewed as God dwelling. Now, at Pentecost, the fulfillment of the prophecies, the beginning of the church, now the Holy Spirit is poured out on all flesh. So if you take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17... probably get up there. Um, I'll go ahead and read it. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So now we are the temple where the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Our, our faith does not center around the temple. The temple was the center of Judaism. Now we are not the center, but Christ is the center of Christianity. And then the Holy Spirit dwells within us, and we are the temple where the Holy Spirit dwells. And so there's a shift where Christ is a sinner, and then we are marked and sealed by the Holy Spirit that identifies us as God's people. And if you look at, uh, to clarify it a little more, if you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12 through 14, it says, So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, in him who also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit through our faith in Jesus Christ, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So here we are, Pentecost, beginning of the church, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's been poured out on all flesh. Now the Holy Spirit indwells us and as our seal and that's our identification as being a Christ follower. So, the church, in its theological definition, I would describe 
as this. The church is the people of God through the faith in Jesus Christ. And also, I like this statement. It's by Ladd. He's a, a great New Testament theologian. He says, the church is a creation of God through the Holy Spirit. So the church was created at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Yes. No. Everyone still here? Okay, good, good, good. We'll keep moving on. Okay, now that we kind of got an understanding of the church, the beginning of the church, why the church is considered to be birthed at Pentecost, and the theological significance of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and that's, that's a huge deal. Well, let's take a look at the church as an institution, okay? Because when Jesus ascended, he knew that, okay, I've had my disciples kind of flake on me um, after I died on the cross. They kind of scattered on me. So I need to make sure they're ready to lead this church. And so that's why he had them remain in Jerusalem, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And those guys, the disciples, were the founding leaders of the church. Also, you look back in the Gospels where Jesus talks to Peter and says, hey, you're the rock of the group. I need you. You know, Peter's the guy that denied Christ three times. And, and Jesus is like, hey, I need you. Don't, you know, don't be running around. Don't, don't go back to fishing. You're done fishing. Fishing is no longer your hobby. It's no longer your, your career. No, no longer your way of making money. And so instantly, Jesus established leaders for the church. And so now we get into, okay, what's this church actually look like? And I'm actually going to show a video to help us transition to our next part. So if you guys want to hit just those shades real quick. You can't stop it. It's coming to a town near you. It used to be called contemporary. Some call it relevant. We're so cool, we call it contemporary. Young, hip guy welcoming all with graffiti and cool glasses. I welcome everybody with arms wide open, revealing my tattoo so you know I have a past. Quirky transition to band. Invite everyone to stand. Let's do it. This is the song that everyone knows. It's the song that everyone knows. song that nobody knows nobody knows this song I want you to learn this song and buy my record in the bookstore after the service I just want to invite the ushers up as we prepare for our offering hmm Feel free to give if you feel led. It's between you and God, but we're tracking it. One man 
has all the answers. I have all the answers. Showing a picture of a puppy and or a baby from an impoverished third world nation. Speaking softly to draw you in. And then emphatically, driving home my point. Long pause. Whispering. Repetition. Still pausing. Pained expression. Long prayer so that the worship leader can get back on stage. This is the closing song with strings that'll make you cry. Coming soon to your town, a new kind of church. You will be lifted high and challenged to grow. We call that Grotivation. You call this Sunday morning. Yeah, I was just practicing my dramatic pause there, so forgive me for that. I just had to take my opportunity. Okay, that uh, that video, pretty extreme, I would say. Um, the cool thing is the third largest church in the United States created that video, located in Atlanta. And they have around, I think it's around 23,000 uh, people that attend it weekly. So that's... So it's kind of cool that a church actually made that video. And I know one of their intentions of making that video is kind of for the church in America to kind of check their heart, kind of check their motivation, make sure they're not manipulating people. So I think it's a good thing to, to, to take a look at and to evaluate. And I've been to a lot of different churches, um, several different mega churches, to medium-sized churches, to a house church. Um, throughout the last several years, especially when I was in school and seminary. And I, one thing I'm really thankful about New Life is that there is a, a genuine heart behind the people that are on stage. There's a genuine heart behind the people that are teaching. That yes, here you have, you have the lights, you have the music. We have an amazing, amazing band and worship people here. It is extraordinary. And so we're not trying to knock you know, all that stuff is wrong, but it's, it's just a question whether, you know, what, what's your intentions? Um, what's your motivation? What's your heart? And I would say we all should be very grateful of New Life being a large church that still is founded on the Word of God, that's still founded on being led by the Holy Spirit, that, that lead with genuine hearts. And so I think that's pretty cool. Um, but what happens a lot of times is people will take a look at the American church and they're like, oh my gosh, you know, this is so true. Like, this is you know, church is way off. And then they'll go to the opposite extreme. They'll swing the pendulum to the opposite side and say, you know, it's all about house churches. You know, the way the, way the church was founded. You know, first century, there were house churches, and that's what we should be doing. You know, these, these big stage, these big buildings, this is all wrong. And I would, I would disagree with that complete swing. I'm not saying house churches are wrong. I just wouldn't say a house church is the model for church. It can be a model for church, but I wouldn't say it's the model for church. And so let's go ahead and take a look at the first century. Take a look at what the church was birthed into. Because we got an idea of, you know, the beginning of church being Pentecost, Holy Spirit being poured out. Okay, now what's that look like? Okay, 
who were the first Christians? Anyone? Who were the first Christians? Disciples. Jewish disciples. Okay, first Christians were Jewish. Okay, so now you have these first Christians coming out of Judaism into Christianity, and they're kind of trying to figure out, hey, what, what's this look like? What, what's expected of believers? What's expected of the church? What is expected of those who follow Christ? Because I guarantee you, right off the bat, they can say, okay, this is what it means to be a Jew. This is what you do. These are the laws you follow. These are the, the festivals that you partake in. This is what you do at the festivals. And they go down the line. Okay, now it's, it's a new deal. And this is why Jesus established leaders. That's why he trained up the disciples, why he was here to lead the church. So instantly there's leadership in church, and instantly I want to point that out. There should, that is something that people will leave out. People will be like, okay, house churches wear it out. We should just be, just meet. You know, it's just about a gathering, fellowshipping. And they, they kind of knock on leadership, that church leadership can be negative. In reality, Jesus established the first leaders of the church. Okay, so here we go. We have these first leaders of the church that are Jewish. If you look at the Jerusalem council that took place in Acts 15, that whole council, that whole discussion of the church leaders during that chapter was debating what is required of the Gentiles within the church. And so instantly, you know, at the beginning of the church, they're trying to figure things out. They're like, okay, does a Gentile have to be circumcised? Do they not have to be circumcised? I guarantee the Gentiles are rooting for the no on the circumcision. Um, being 30, 40, 50 years old, that's not going to be fun. Um, so you have this big discussion that's going on, and, and they're debating it. Some are saying, oh, no, no, they, they should, they should. I had to, they should. Or some are saying, no, it's about Jesus Christ. It's about our, our faith in him, and we are saved by his grace. And that is what it's about. And that's what you find in scriptures. And so instantly they are trying to figure out how to balance and how to lead the church. And so when people want to go back to the first century, it's kind of like, well, the church was just getting started. They're trying to figure out what it actually looked like. I mean, it was in a major transition. And so to go back during that transition time is kind of not possible. And so I, I kind of want to dispel the whole idea, oh, it's all about the first century. I think there's things that we can learn about the first century and the church within the first century that we can apply today. So, and, we, and also, one other thing I want to point out about the first century is about the fact that they did have disagreements. Um, if you look at the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, two respective leaders of the church. You know, Barnabas is the guy that's known, noted as the encourager. And so Paul and Barnabas go out on their first journey together, and they're traveling together, going on the first missionary journey together. And Mark goes with them. Shortly into the trip, Mark pieces out. He just leaves. Okay? And then fast forward back to the Jerusalem council. After that council, Paul and Barnabas are about to go out. Okay, we got this settled. We can go deliver the news to the Gentiles, the Gentile churches. And they're about to head out again. And then Barnabas, Barnabas is like, hey, we got to take Mark with us again. And Paul's like, Heck no. That guy flaked on us before. Why, why would we take him again? We'll probably head a few cities down the road and he'll take off and do whatever he wants to do. We'll get to some island, some Mediterranean coast, and he'll probably go hang out on the beach or something. I don't know. Who knows what he is saying? But Paul was in disagreement with Barnabas, and they actually split ways. They were going to journey together, and they decided to go separate ways. 
And I wouldn't say their friendship or was destroyed, and they definitely reconciled, but they had a split and went different ways. So we can't look at the early church also and think of it just being perfect. They were just trying to figure things out, like we are still today. Today, excuse me. Okay, now we got an idea of, you know, the transition stage the church is in. One thing we do know is they didn't meet in houses. So getting back to the house church. Okay. Why did they meet in houses? Does anybody know? Anybody know why they met in houses? Exactly. So Christianity wasn't legal. Christianity was under heavy persecution from the get-go, from Jews and the Romans. So instantly, the house, the ho- their homes was the safest place for them. The reason they met in homes wasn't to establish a church model for the rest of eternity. They met in homes because that's where they had to meet. That's the location they could meet in. So they would meet in their own homes because it was safe. And it, because, you know, buildings aren't built right off the bat. You know, Christianity starts, they have synagogues. There's a temple. It's not like, oh, collect some money, let's go build us a church. No, that thing would have been burned down, teared down instantly when the first brick would have been laid. So, so really the first century realized, okay, they met in houses because, really because of practical reasons. They met in houses because that's where they had to meet. And so we got to be careful on saying that is the model. And I'm not trying to knock house churches today, and I'm not saying it's, it's terrible. I'm just saying we got to make sure we don't swing to the opposite pendulum. When we see the video that we saw earlier, that's an extreme, and that's a church that can be motivated by the wrong reasons. But then we can swing to the opposite side and say, oh, it's all about the house church. And we want a happy medium, I would say. Would you guys agree? Okay. Has anyone been a part of a house church before? Okay, okay. So I'm not trying to knock it. I have been too, so no worries. Um, okay, and also we touched a little bit on the reason they meant houses because of the persecution they, they experienced. And I'm sure everyone has read different parts of the New Testament and saw the persecution they dealt with. And so, again, another thing is when people think of, you know, the beginning of church, like, oh, let's go back to the beginning of church. Unfortunately, there are people today experiencing what they experienced in the first century. They are being persecuted. They have to meet early in the morning, or they have to hide their meetings. Um, If you look at, or you can't look at it, because I have it up here. Um, Pliny, he was a governor of Bithynia in northern Asia Minor from 106 to 114 AD. And he's writing this letter, and he's, he's describing this, the church as meeting before dawn. And they would meet before dawn, they would read, chant scriptures together, and, and commit themselves to moral lives. And then they would disperse during the day, and then they meet up later to eat. And so right there you can see how they had to meet before the sun even rose. So, I mean, we, we can go back to that. We can meet before the sun's up, if you guys would like. And so... I think, I think what's neat is looking back at the early churches, they did what they had to do. They functioned in the way they needed to function. And they made sure they met. They took every opportunity to meet, and they, they, they were grateful for being able to meet in houses. And so also a few other things I kind of like to throw out there too is, not to get graphic, but talking about some of the persecution that the church faced. Um, Nero was the emperor in Rome, or in, over the over Rome uh, in 64 AD, and there's a massive fire in Rome, and he blamed it on the Christians. Uh, so often the Christians were the scapegoats. Also, you look at different martyrs were burned alive. I, I read some stuff where they said they, 
they put like skins of animals over them and then they let ravaged animals just tear them apart. And so was, they were brutally persecuted. And so the situations that they dealt with at that time are very, I would say are unique to that time, but are rough. And so we should be careful on saying, let's go back to the first century. Okay, another misconception of the first century is the scriptures where they talk about, okay, they met houses, they had everything in common. Okay, and they're like, okay, we should live in Christian compounds. You know, Christians, they sold their stuff. They, 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 they gave everything they had to live together. And that's, that's an idea that you will see in different groups today. And I'm not trying to knock them, but I do want to cover a little bit in Acts where it talks about that common living. Um, it's in the first few chapters where it will talk about that. Um, there's a few things I want to point out. In Acts chapter 4, verse 34 through 35, I'm going to read that. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. So right there, it talks about different people selling. It didn't say they had to, but it said they did. Uh, going further, the next two verses, it says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostle Barnabas, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here you have Barnabas. He says he sold a field. It didn't say he sold his house. It didn't say he sold everything. And so I just want to point out something here. It's like, never did it say you must sell everything. And the scripture talks about giving everything. And so we must give everything about ourselves to God. And that's, that's our heart, our mind, our soul, that we are totally engaged in who he is and worshiping him and helping others. That is the goal. That is the intention. So you have these people selling plots of land. You have people selling houses, but they weren't commanded to, nor did everyone sell absolutely everything they had. Sometimes they were just selling a plot of land. Of course, then you say, okay, well, what about Acts chapter 5? When you have Ananias and Sapphira, they, they were struck dead because they didn't give everything. Well, looking at that, first and foremost, it talks about how they sold a piece of property, Again, they sold a piece of property. And also, they are committed as lying to the Holy Spirit. That's what the church leader said. You have lied to the Holy Spirit. Why? Because here they have sold a plot of land. They come before the leaders of the church to lay at their feet and says, we sold a plot of land. Here's our money. Okay. They were not, the church leaders were not mad because they didn't have all the money. They were mad because they acted as if they gave it all to them. And so they were lying about what they were doing. That was a sin. The sin wasn't the fact that they didn't give it all. The sin was the fact that they lied about it and they acted as if they did. So that was that current situation. So what can we learn from this in the early church? The early church helped each other out. Okay, we talked about the persecution they dealt with. You know, you had the church being birthed out of Judaism into a Greco-Roman world, into a very difficult situation. So you have these stories of the Jerusalem church selling property and helping the needy because they needed to help each other because they were facing hard times. And so I think the main focus here is, are, are, can we be willing to sell something very priced? Or can we be willing to sell something very valuable to help the needy? Or do we need to keep it all for ourselves? And they realized that. Nowhere did they talk about living in some Christian compound or commune or 
where they had to leave their own home. Because frankly, where did the first churches meet? Houses. So people had houses to meet in still. And so not everyone sold their house, because then there wouldn't have been a house for them to meet in. I guarantee you everyone didn't live in just one of those houses because they weren't very big. And so I think we do need to take a look at the first century and think of all the cool stuff that is a part of the first century, but realize, wow, these, the church was birthed into a very difficult situation. But the cool thing is they were empowered by the Holy Spirit to withstand the persecution, to stand up, and to further Christianity. And so they, they didn't flake out this time. After Jesus died... And while he was in the grave, you know, the disciples dispersed and were terrified. But this time, after Jesus ascended, they waited for the Holy Spirit. And they remained in Jerusalem and then went out from Jerusalem to pronounce the gospel. They had the boldness and the strength because of the Holy Spirit, which is pretty cool. Because if you look at Paul and what he dealt with, uh, it's, it's pretty crazy. I mean, if you just look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11... Uh, right around verse 23, it'll talk about how he was in prison. He was beaten countless times, uh, almost near death. Five times at the hands of the Jews, he received 40 lashes minus one. Um, he was beaten three times with rods, and he was stoned once. Uh, he has some resilience, I would say. I don't know. If I got beaten with a rod, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how I'd respond, so I don't even want to talk big up here right now. But Paul, that guy, he was the man. He was legit. I'm sure he's probably jacked or something. I don't know. Everything that he faced and everything that he did. But, and so right, as you can see, the difficulty that the church was birthed in, but the beauty of the gift of the Holy Spirit that took place. And again, that is the theological significance of Pentecost and the church being birthed at Pentecost is the fact that the Holy Spirit was poured out. And so we have, to recover, to retract back a little bit, we have ecclesia, meaning gathering, local congregation, or the church body as a whole. We have the birth of the church taking place at Pentecost. Why did it take place at Pentecost? Because it is the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, the fulfillment of Joel 2, where the Holy Spirit is poured out, where the final establishment of the new covenant is taking place. So we have Pentecost, Holy Spirit, birth of the church. Now the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Christ is our center, and we have the power of the Holy Spirit, and we are sealed by that Holy Spirit, and that is what identifies the church as a whole. And then we look at the early church and their leadership and the progression that they took. Jesus has established the leaders. He trained up the disciples, told them to remain in Jerusalem, and empowered them by the Holy Spirit to lead. And then from there, you hear about Paul, you know, he's preaching the word, he's going into all the world, and he is establishing leaders and overseers in these churches. And so, as you can see, as a church, as an institution, leadership was established by Jesus Christ. Leadership was established in every church that was established by the apostles. And so I would say leadership is important, and, and we can't... At the most basic definition, yes, it is gathering, but just the gathering doesn't completely define the church. Because Jesus established leaders because he knew of the hardships they'd face. He knew the decisions they'd have to face. I mean, think of the tough decisions we have today. I mean, you get a gray chair. You get a blue chair. I mean, what do you get? Do you have pews? Do you have chairs? Do we have tables? Do we take tables out? Do we line the chairs up? 
I mean, there's church splits over that stuff. I mean, those are difficult decisions. Um, no, not to take light. No, but they had difficult decisions to face. And they knew that there would be difficult decisions throughout. And so there was an institution of the church established for those reasons. Also, you had so many random gospels, random doctrines, uh, false gospels. They were skewing uh, who Jesus was. I got to share on who Jesus Christ was and the different heresies about Jesus a few weeks ago. And so if you're there for that, you, you saw all the misconceptions that law groups have today. Well, they dealt with the same thing then. And so it's important to have solid leaders that are led by God through the Holy Spirit. Okay? Make sense? Okay. So now we got a good understanding, good foundation. And now I have a question for you guys. It's not a question for you guys to answer, but it's a question I really want you guys to ponder and think about. We've talked about a few different churches. We played a video that, uh, very critical video, uh, a critical view of the American church, I would say, to some degree. Um, And we also talked about house churches also. But my question is, do do we critique church in general? Critique the beginning of the church critique church history and critique the modern day church based on biblical doctrine or do we critique it on our personal preference because i could i could not wear a tie and teach up here okay and some congregations in some situations people would say i should be in a full suit and tie in some situations they say no and those are situations where i would say are not biblical doctrines those are personal preference and what happens is our personal preference gets in the way. And our perf- personal preference causes us to get critical and it causes us to miss out on opportunities of being a part of a body and also miss out on opportunities to worship God. And I, I felt like I learned this lesson the hard way. I was, again, I, I was at Oral Roberts University. I was in seminary. I remember I was sitting up in the balcony. And ORU, we would get we would get all kinds of speakers, all kinds of bands, all kinds of worship bands from all over the place, okay? And it would get really easy to get critical of the message of the individuals preaching or worshiping, where you could just judge them based on how they talked, what they said, or what they were wearing, or how they played the music, or how loud the music was, or how soft the music was, or how energetic they were. It's so easy to just get critical, and you start judging these people's heart, and you don't even know their heart. And as I'm up there, there's this band from Australia. Worship band, not Hillsong. Not Hillsong. But it's a worship band from Australia. And they come on, and they were, I would say, like a rock worship group. And it almost seemed like a rock concert. And chapel is like at 10, 11 o'clock in the late morning. And I'm just sitting there going, oh, gosh. I, I don't know. I'm thinking about the paper after the ride. I'm like, judging these people. I'm like, these guys are a joke. They come from Australia. They think they're gonna, we're going to be impressed with their accents and their worship styles and just because they're down the road from Hillsong or something. And so I, I'm getting critical and, and I'm, I'm just missing out on worship. I'm just, I'm just there. Now look over to the left. I remember very vividly looking over the left seeing this Nigerian man. And he was a fellow seminary student. He was in, I want to say his early 60s. And this man is in a cultural different situation. I mean, if anybody, if anybody, this, this kind of worship is the farthest from what he is used to 
what he would enjoy. I mean, the music was crazy loud. I, re- I remember the guy on the keyboard, he had the brightest neon yellow pants and a black shirt. No lie. This was like three years ago, and I remember vividly. He's sitting there dancing. I mean, he's like kicking his legs out and just going nuts. And so I remember that very clearly because I remember the lesson the Lord taught me in that situation. Well, I look over there. I'm looking at this man, this Nigerian man. He's in his 60s. I mean, he wasn't even used to, I mean, he came from Nigeria. He wasn't even used to American culture. And here he is in this worship setting that's far from him. And he is literally hands up in the air, worshiping the way he always worshiped. He's dancing. He's twirling around. He, he was the sweetest old man, and he would always worship the same way. And I look over at him, and I was convicted. I'm like, this guy is passionately worshiping God with a band that's the farthest from his culture, and he's not being critical. He's not trying to judge their hearts. We don't know what their hearts are, but we're judging based on the outward appearance. And I'm just sitting there going like, man, I am the worst person in the world. Like, this should cater towards me anyways. And I just realized... Wow, how our personal preference, how our judgment of the people on stage can hinder our opportunity to worship God. I missed out there. I was the one missing out. I missed a worship service, an opportunity to spend time with the Lord. And I just realized, wow, how many times have I done this? How many times have I been in church services and worship services where I'm critiquing what they say? Or I'm like, oh, blah, 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 blah. Oh, that guy's wearing really nice shoes, or he's wearing a tie, or he's not dressed up, or he looks like this or that. Or, wow, that worship is, there's no music, there's, there's no instruments in this. I can't worship, there's no instruments. No, some church service congregations don't have instruments. I'm not saying no instruments is wrong. It's not my preference. But if I'm in a service where there's no instruments, am I going to sit there and go, oh, these legalistic people, they don't think we should use instruments? Or can I put that aside and say, God, I, I'm here to worship you regardless of instruments or no instruments. And I think that's, that's the biggest thing I really cared about really sharing with you guys. I wanted to really talk about the birth of the church, really talk about how the importance of the Holy Spirit being involved with that, and a little bit of the background, and show a fun video uh, just to get you guys laughing. But in, in reality, man, if we get critical, we can judge church. There's no exact one model for church. There's no, church has to be this way and only this way. There's a few different forms. You know, there's, we're human, there's going to be some personal preferences here and there, and it's okay. And the thing is, can we function together? Does it always have to be about us and what we think is right? No, it doesn't. So I encourage you guys as, as time, and we're going to learn more and more about ecclesiology and different things, but in the study of the church, but I encourage you guys to check yourself. To ask, you, ask yourself the question, when you're in a church service, you're being cri- critical, okay, is this biblically based or my own preference? And most of the time, it's our preference. I won't lie, there's, there's churches that are just like that video I showed. That is a reality. I'm not even going to pretend. That's a reality. But not every church is like that. And just because a church has lights, we have lights. We have Amazing music doesn't mean those guys' hearts aren't amazing. Uh, I, I, early in the summer, I got to play on, we were playing just on a softball league, and John Egan, one of the worship guys, was on that team. And it was like the first time I actually got to interact with him playing sports. And I was, it was just really neat seeing his heart, seeing the way he interacted on, on, on the field. And it just, it's really neat because you see up there, you see the talent, 
It's amazing talent, but the heart is there, guys. And that's, that's the neat thing that we have here at this church. And so I encourage you guys, every church you go to, be able to enjoy, be able to have fun with it, but don't get overwhelmed. Um, I'm going to pray this out, and I'm actually going to let you guys out a little early. I feel like what was said was what needed to be said, and there's no reason for me just to ramble to ramble. So, dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for always being there for us. We thank you for sending the Holy Spirit, for pouring out your Holy Spirit on all flesh, to give us the power to be witnesses. We thank you for amazing opportunities to fellowship with fellow believers. That we have the opportunity to fellowship out in the open, that we are not being persecuted for our faith here. Uh, we pray for those who are in different areas of the world that are being persecuted for, for their faith, that we ask you to give them the strength and continue to give them the boldness to con- continue forth in their life. So guys, we go throughout our weeks and our, our lives. Let us not be critical of you. Let us not be critical of the leaders. Other church, just be critical. Let us not base what church should be on just by our personal preference, but biblically, Lord God, and realize that there's a few different ways to do it. Lord God, so we thank you for everything. In Jesus' name, amen. So next week, ecclesiology, come back. Dr. Joe Kirkendall should be back. So have a good week.